Section eighty one of London Labour and the London Poor by Henry Mayhew, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Yearsley. The Street Folk, Part eighty one. Of the Swag Barrowmen and Lot Sellers. The Swag, miscellaneous, barrow, is one of the objects in the streets which attracts, perhaps more readily than any other, the regards of the passer by there are so many articles and of such various uses they are often so closely packed so new and clean-looking and every here and there so tastefully arranged that this street trader's barrow really repays an examination here are spread on the flat part of the barrow pepper cruets or boxes tea caddies nutmeg graters vinegar cruets pen cases glass or china handled pens pot ornaments beads earrings fingerings plain or with stones cases of scent bottles dolls needle cases pincushions exhibition medals and frames framed pictures watches shawl pins extinguishers trumpets and other toys kaleidoscopes seals combs lockets thimbles bone toothpicks small playing cards teetotums shuttlecocks key-rings shirt-studs or buttons hooks and eyes coat-studs money-boxes spoons boxes of toys earthenware mugs and glass articles such as salt-cellars and smelling-bottles on one barrow were two hundred and twenty-five articles at the back and sides of the swag-barrow are generally articles which are best displayed in an erect position these are children's wooden swords whips climbing monkeys and tumblers jointed snakes twisting to the wind from the top of a stick kites and such things as tin egg-holders perhaps on the very few barrows or stalls are to be seen all the articles i have enumerated but they are all in the trade and if not found in this man's stock may be found in his neighbours things which attain only a temporary sale such as galvanic rings the lord's prayer in the compass of a sixpence gutter-percher heads and so on are also to be found during the popular demand in the miscellaneous trader's stock each of the articles enumerated is retailed at one penny only a penny is the cry pick em out anywhere wherever your taste lies only a penny a penny a penny but on a few other barrows are goods mixed with the penny wares of a higher price such as knives and forks mustard pots sham beer glasses note the glasses which appear to hold beer frothing to the brim end note higher priced articles of jewellery skipping ropes drums china ornaments and so on at these barrows the prices run from one penny to one shilling the practice of selling by commission the same as i have shown to prevail among the costers exists among the miscellaneous dealers of whom i am treating who are known among street folk as swag barrow men or in the popular ellipsis penny swags the word swag meaning as i before showed a collection a lot the swag men are often confounded with the lot sellers so that i proceed to show the difference the lot sellers proper are those who vend a variety of small articles or a lot all for one penny a lot frequently consists of a sheet of songs a chinese puzzle a five-pound note bank of elegance 
an exhibition snuff-box containing six spoons a half-jack half-sovereign a gold ring a silver ring and a chaste keeper with rose thistle and shamrock on it the lots are diversified with packs of a few cards little pewter ornaments boxes of small wooden toys shirt-buttons baby thimbles beads tiny scent-bottles and such like the penny apiece or swag trade as contradistinguished from the penny lots vended by the lot sellers was originated by a man who some nineteen years ago sold a variety of trifles from a tea-tray in petticoat lane my informant had heard him say for the original penny apiece died four years ago that he did it to get rid of the odds and ends of his stock the system however at once attracted popularity and the fortunate street-seller prospered and died worth money at that period penny goods excepting such things as sweetstuffs pastry and so on were far less numerous in the streets and yet i have never met with an old street trader note a statement fully borne out by old and intelligent mechanics end note, who did not pronounce spare pennies to be far more abundant in those days among the poorer and even middle classes there were moreover far fewer street chapmen so that this novel mode of business had every chance to thrive the origin of lot selling or selling penny lots instead of penny articles was more curious it was commenced by an ingenious swiss about a year after the penny apiece trade known in the street circles as swede he was a refugee a roman catholic and a hot politician he spoke and understood english well but had no sympathy with the liberal parties in this country he was a republican he would say and the chartists were only milk and water when he established his lot selling he used to place to his mouth an instrument which was described to me as like a doubled card and play upon it very finely this would attract a crowd and he would then address them in good english but with a slight foreign accent my friends come to me and i will show you my musical instruments which will play italian swiss french scotch irish or any tunes and here you see beautiful cheap lots of useful things and elegant things a penny a lot a penny a lot the arrangement of the lots was similar to what it is at present but the components of the pennyworth were far less numerous this man carried on a good trade in london for two or three years and then applied his industry to a country more than a town career he died about five or six years ago at his abode in fashion street spitalfields worth money at the time of his decease he was the proprietor of two lodging-houses one in spitalfields the other in birmingham both i am told well conducted the charge was fourpence a night he did not reside in either but employed deputies i may observe that he sold his musical instruments also at one penny each but the sale was insignificant only himself seemed master of em said one man with other people they were no better nor a jew's harp of the penny apiece street vendors there are about three hundred in london two hundred and fifty having barrows and fifty stalls or pitches on the ground some even sell at a halfpenny apiece but chiefly to get rid of inferior wares 
or when cracked up and unable to spring a better stock the barrows are seven feet by three are well built in general and cost fifty shillings each these barrows when fully stocked are very heavy about four hundredweight so that it requires a strong man to propel one any distance and though occasionally the man's wife officiates as the saleswoman there is always a man connected with the business in my description of a stock of penny goods i have mentioned that there were two hundred and twenty-five articles these were counted on a barrow in a street near the brill but probably on another occasion when there appeared a better chance of selling there might be five hundred articles such things as rings and the like admitting of being stowed by the hundred in very small compass the great display however is only on the occasion of holidays or when a man starts and wants to stun you with a show at maidstone fair the other day a london street seller rather well to do sold his entire stock of penny articles to a shopkeeper of the town and when counted there were exactly fifteen gross or two thousand one hundred and sixty pieces as they are sometimes called these vended at one penny each would realize just nine pounds and would cost wholesale about six pounds or for ready money at the swag shops where they may be bought from ten shillings to twenty shillings less according to the bargaining powers of the buyer the man's reason for selling was that the fair was no good that is to say the farmers had no money and their labourers received only seven shillings a week so there was no demand the swag seller therefore rather than incur the trouble and expense of having to carry his wares back to london sold at a loss to a shopkeeper in maidstone who wanted a stock the swag barrow men selling on commission have three shillings in every twenty shillings worth of goods that they sell the commission may average from nine shillings to twelve shillings a week in tolerable weather but as in bad and especially in foggy weather the trade cannot be prosecuted at all seven shillings and sixpence may be the highest average or ten shillings the year through the character of the penny swagmen belongs more to that of the costermongers than to any other class of street folk many of them drink as freely as their means will permit i was told of a match between a teetotaler and a beer-drinker about nine years ago it was for five shillings a side and the championship each man started with an equal stock alike in all respects but my informant had forgotten the precise number of articles they pattered twenty-five yards apart one from another three hours in james street covent garden three hours in the blackfriars road and three hours in deptford the teetotaler was sold out in seven and a half hours while his opponent and the contest seems to have been carried on very good-humouredly at the nine hours end had four dozen articles left and was rather exhausted or as it was described to me told out the result albeit was not looked upon i was assured as anything very decisive of the relative merits of beer or water as the source of strength or inspiration of patter the teetotaler was the smarter though he did not appear the stronger man he abandoned the championship and went into another trade four years ago the patter of the swagmen has nothing of the humour of the paper workers 
it is merely declaratory that the extensive stock offered on such liberal terms to the public would furnish a wholesale shop that such another opportunity for cheap pennyworths could never by any possibility occur again and that it was a duty on all who heard the patterer to buy at once the men having their own barrows or stalls but the stall trade is small buy their goods as they find their stock needs replenishment at the swag shops it was a good trade at first sir said one man and for its not being a good trade now we may partly blame one another there was a cutting down trade among us black earrings were bought at fourteen pence a dozen and sold at a loss at a penny each so were children's trap bats and monkeys up sticks but they are now ninepence a dozen sometimes sir as i know the master of a swag barrow gets served out you see a man may once on a time have a good day and take as much as two pound well next day he'll use part of that money and go as a penny swag on his own account or else he'll buy things he is sold out of and work them on his own account on his master's barrow all right sir his master makes him a convenience for his own pocket and so his master may be made a convenience for the man when he takes the barrow back at the week's end if he's been doing a little on his own dodge there's the stock and there's the money it's all right between a rich man and a poor man that way turn and turn about's fair play the lot sellers are when the whole body are in london about two hundred in number but they are three times as itinerant into the country as are the traders in the heavier and little portable swag barrows the lot sellers nearly all vend their goods from trays slung from their shoulders the best localities for the lot sellers are radcliffe highway commercial road whitechapel minories tower hill tooley street newington causeway walworth blackfriars and westminster roads longacre hoban and oxford street to this list may be added the brill tottenham court road and the other street markets on saturday evenings when some of these places are almost impassable the best places for the swagborough trade are also those i have specified their customers alike for the useful and fancy articles are the working classes and the chief sale is on saturdays and mondays one swagman told me that he thought he could sell better if he had a less crowded barrow but his master was so keen of money that he would make him try everything it made selling more tiresome too he said for a poor couple who had a penny or two to lay out would fix on half the things they saw and change them for others before they parted with their money of the penny a piece sellers trading on their own account the receipts may be smaller than those of the men who work the huge swag barrows on commission but their profits are greater calculating that one hundred of these traders are the year round in london note some are absent all the summer at country fairs and on any favourable opportunity while a number of swag barrowmen leave that employment for costermongering on their own account End note. and that each takes two pounds weekly we find no less than ten thousand four hundred pounds thus expended in the streets of london in a year the lot sellers also resort largely to the country and frequently try other callings such as the sale of fruit medals and so on some also sell lots only on saturday and monday nights taking these deductions into consideration it may be estimated that only fifty men 
there is but one female lot-seller on her own account, carry on the trade, presuming it to be spread over the six days of the week. Each of them may take thirteen shillings weekly, with a profit of seven shillings and sixpence, so showing the street outlay to be one thousand six hundred and ninety pounds. The lots are bought at the German and English swag shops. The principal supply, however, is procured from Black Tom in Clerkenwell. Of the Street Sellers of Roulette Boxes In my account of the street trade in China ornaments, I had occasion to mention a use to which a roulette box or portable roulette table was put. I need only repeat in this place that the box, usually on mahogany, contains a board with numbered partitions, which is set spinning by means of a central knob on a pivot. The lid is then placed on the box, a P is slipped through a hole in the lid, and on the number of the partition in which the P is found deposited when the motion has ceased depends the result. The table or board is thus adapted for the determination of that mode of raising money, popular among costermongers and other street folk, who in their very charities crave some excitement, I mean a raffle, or it may be used for play by one or more persons, the highest number spun determining the winner. These street-sold tables may still be put to another use. In the smaller sort, going no higher than fourteen, one division is blank. Thus any one may play against another, or several others, spinning in turns, the blank being a chance in the banker's favour. Some of the tables, however, are numbered as high as thirty-six, or, as a seller of them described it, single and double zero bang, a French game. This curious street trade has been carried on for seven years, but with frequent interruptions, by one man, who, until within these few weeks, was the sole trader in the article. There are now but two selling roulette boxes at all regularly. The long-established salesman wears mustachios and has a good deal the look of a foreigner. During his seven years' experience, he has sold he calculates twelve thousand roulette boxes at a profit of from a hundred and seventy-five pounds to two hundred pounds the prices retail are from one shilling to two pounds at which high amount my informant once disposed of a roulette in the street he has sold however more at one shilling than at all other rates together the shilling roulette is about three inches in diameter the others proportionately larger these wares are German-made, bought at a swag shop, and retailed at a profit of from fifteen to thirty-three per cent. They are carried in a basket, one being held for public examination in the vendor's hand. My best customers, said the experienced man in the business, are stockkeepers, travellers, and parsons, people that have spare time on their hands. Oh, I mean by travellers, gentlemen going on a railway who pass the time away at roulette. Now and then a regular leg, when he's travelling to Chester, York, or Doncaster, to the races, may draw other passengers into play, and make a trifle, or not a trifle, by it. Or he will play with other legs. But it's generally for amusement, I've reason to believe. Friends travelling together play for a trifle to pass away time, or who shall pay for breakfasts for two, or such like. I supplied one gaming-house with a large roulette table made of a substance that, if you throw it into water, 
and there's always a pail of tepid ready, would dissolve very quickly. When it's not used, it's hung against the wall and is so made that it looks to be an oil painting framed. It costs them ten pounds. I suppose I have the knock of almost every gaming house in London. There's plenty of them still. The police can drive such as me about in the streets or out of the streets to starve, but lords and gentlemen and some parsons I know go to the gaming houses, and when one's broke into by the officers, it's really funny. John Smith and Thomas Jones and William Brown are pulled up, but as no gaming implements are found, there's nothing against them. Some of these houses are never noticed for a long time. The great Nick hasn't been, nor the little Nick. I don't know why they're called Nicks, those two, but so they are. Perhaps after old Nick. At the great Nick, I dare say there's often a thousand pounds depending. But the little Nick is what we call only brown paper men, low gamblers, playing for pence, and one shilling being a great go. I wonder the police allow that. Of the street sellers of poison for rats. The number of vermin destroyers and rat catchers who ply their avocation in London has of late years become greatly diminished. One cause which I heard assigned for this was that many ruinous old buildings and old streets had been removed, and whole colonies of rats had been thereby extirpated. Another was that the race of rat catchers had become distrusted and had either sought some other mode of subsistence or had resorted to other fields for the exercise of their professional labours. The rat-catcher's dress is usually a velveteen jacket, strong corduroy trousers, and laced boots. Round his shoulder he wears an oilskin belt, on which are painted the figures of huge rats with fierce-looking eyes and formidable whiskers. His hat is usually glazed, and sometimes painted after the manner of his belt. Occasionally, and in the country far more than in town, he carries in his hand an iron cage in which are ferrets, while two or three crop-eared rough terriers dog his footsteps. Sometimes a tamed rat runs about his shoulders and arms, or nestles in his bosom or in the large pockets of his coat. When a rat-catcher is thus accompanied, there is generally a strong aromatic odour about him, far from agreeable. This is owing to his clothes being rubbed with oil of thyme and oil of aniseed mixed together. This composition is said to be so attractive to the sense of the rats, when used by a man who understands its due apportionment and proper application, that the vermin have left their holes and crawled to the master of the powerful spell. I heard of one man, not a rat-catcher professionally, who had in this way tamed a rat so effectually that the animal would eat out of his mouth, crawl upon his shoulder to be fed, and then smuggle into his bosom, note the words of my informant, end note, and sleep there for hours. The rat-catchers have many wonderful stories of the sagacity of the rat, and though in reciting their own feats these men may not be the most trustworthy of narrators, any work on natural history will avouch that Rats are sagacious, may be trained to be very docile, and are naturally animals of great resources in all straits and difficulties. One great source of the rat-catcher's employment and emolument thirty years ago, or even to a later period, is now comparatively a non-entity. 
at that time the rat catcher or killer sometimes received a yearly or quarterly stipend to keep a london granary clear of rats i was told by a man who has for twenty-eight years been employed about london granaries that he has never known a rat catcher employed in one except about twenty or twenty-two years ago and that was in a granary by the riverside the professional man he told me certainly poisoned many rats which stunk so continued my informant but then all evil odours in old buildings are attributed to dead rats that it was enough to infect the corn he poisoned two fine cats as well but i believe he was a young hand and a bungler the rats after these measures had been taken seemed to have deserted the place for three weeks or a month when they returned in as great numbers as ever nor were their ravages and annoyances checked until the drains were altered and rebuilt it is in the better disposition of the drains of a corn magazine i am assured that the great check upon the inroads of these varmint is attained by strong mason work and by such a series and arrangement of grates as defy even the perseverance of a rat otherwise the hordes which prey upon the garbage in the common sewers are certain to find their way into the granary along the drains and channels communicating with those sewers and will increase rapidly despite the measures of the rat-catcher the same man told me that he had been five or six times applied to by rat-catchers and with liberal offers of beer to allow them to try and capture the black rats in the granary one of these traders declared that he wanted them for a gent as was curious in them their interest in varmint but from the representations of the other applicants my informant was convinced that they were wanted for rat hunts the dog billy being backed for one hundred pounds to kill so many rats in so many minutes you see sir the corn merchant's man continued ours is an old concern and there's black rats in it great big fellows some of em must be old for they're as white about the muzzle as is the duke of wellington and they have the character of being very strong and very fierce one of the catchers asked me if i knew what a stunning big black rat would weigh as if i weighed rats i always told them that i cared nothing about rat hunts and that i knew our people wouldn't like to be bothered and they was gentlemen that didn't admire sporting characters the black rat i may observe or the english rat is now comparatively scarce while the brown or hanoverian rat is abundant this brown rat seems to have become largely domiciled in england about the period of the establishment of the hanoverian dynasty whence its name a hanover rat was a term of reproach applied by the jacobites to the successful party the rat catchers are also rat killers they destroy the animals sometimes by giving them what is called in the trade an alluring poison every professional destroyer or capturer of rats will pretend that as to poison he has his own particular method his secret his discovery but there is no doubt that arsenic is the basis of all their poisons its being inodorous and easily reducible to a soft fine powder renders it the best adapted for mixing with anything of which rats are fond toasted cheese or bacon or fried liver or tallow or oatmeal much as the poisoner may be able to tempt the animal's appetite 
he must and does proceed cautiously if the bait be placed in an unwonted spot it is often untouched if it be placed where rats have been accustomed to find their food it is often devoured but even then it is frequently accounted best to leave the bait unpoisoned for the first night so that a hungry animal may attack it greedily the second with oatmeal it is usual to mix for the first and even second nights a portion of pounded white sugar if this be eaten it accustoms the jealous pest to the degree of sweetness communicated by arsenic the oatmeal poison is i am told the most effectual but even when mixed only with sugar it is often refused as rats is often better up to a dodge nor kirstians note christians end note another mode of killing rats is for the professional destroyer to slip a ferret into the rat's haunts wherever it is practicable the ferret soon dislodges them and as they emerge for safety they are seized by terriers who after watching the holes often a long time and very patiently and almost breathlessly throttle them silently excepting the short squeak or half squeak of the rat who by a good dog is seized unerringly by the part of the back where the terrier's gripe and shake is speedy death if the rat still move or shows signs of life the well-trained rat killer's dog cracks the vermin's skull between his teeth if the rats have to be taken alive they are either trapped so as not to injure them for a rat hunt or the procedure in the pit would be accounted foul or if driven out of their holes by ferrets they can only run into some cask or other contrivance where they can be secured for the sportsman's purposes although any visible injury to the body of the rat will prevent its reception into a pit the creature's teeth are often drawn and with all the cruelty of a rough awkwardness by means of pinchers so that they may be unable to bite the puppies being trained for the pit on the rats if the vermin be not truly seized by the dog the victim will twist round and inflict a tremendous bite on his warrior generally on the lip this often causes the terrier to drop his prey with a yell and if a puppy he may not forget the lesson from the sharp nip of the rat to prevent this it is that the rat-catchers play the dentist on their unfortunate captives i heard many accounts of the dodges practised by or imputed to the rat-catchers that it was not a very unusual thing to deposit here and there a dead rat when those vermin were to be poisoned on any premises it is then concluded that the good poison has done its good work and the dead animal supplies an ocular demonstration of professional skill these men also i am informed let loose live rats in buildings adapted for the purpose and afterwards apply for employment to destroy them i am informed that the principal scene of the rat-catcher's labours in london is at the mews and in private stables coach-houses and outbuildings it is probable that the gentlemen's servants connected with such places like the excitement of rat-hunting and so encourage the profession which supplies them with that gratification in these places such labours are often necessary as well as popular for i was informed by a coachman then living with his family in a west end mews and long acquainted with the mews in different parts of town that the drainage was often very defective and sanitary regulations 
except perhaps as regarded the horses, little cared for. Hence rats abounded, and were with difficulty dislodged from their secure retreats in the ill-constructed drains and kennels. The great sale of the rat-catchers is to the shops supplying private parties with rats for the amusement of seeing them killed by dogs. With some fast men, one of these shopkeepers told me, it was a favourite pastime in their own rooms on the Sunday mornings. It is, however, somewhat costly if carried on extensively, as the retail charge from the shops is sixpence per rat. The price from the catcher to the dealer is from two shillings and sixpence to seven shillings the dozen. Rats, it appears, are sometimes scarce, and then the shopkeeper must buy to keep up his connection at enhanced cost. One large bird-seller, who sold also plain and fancy rats, white mice, and live hedgehogs, told me that he had, last winter, been compelled to give seven shillings a dozen for his vermin, and sell them at sixpence each. The grand consumption of rats, however, is in Bunhill Row, at a public-house kept by a pugilist. A rat-seller told me that from two hundred to five hundred rats were killed there weekly, the weekly average being, however, only the former number, while at Easter and other holidays it is not uncommon to see bills posted announcing the destruction of five hundred rats on the same day, and in a given time, admittance sixpence. Dogs are matched at these and similar places, as to which kills the greatest number of these animals in the shortest time. I am told that there are forty such places in London, but in some only the holiday times are celebrated in this small imitation of the beast combats of the ancients. There is, too, a frequent abandonment of the trade, in consequence of its not paying, and perhaps it may be fair to estimate that the average consumption of this vermin game does not exceed, in each of these places, twenty a week, or one thousand and forty in a year, giving an aggregate, over and above those consumed in private sport, of fifty-two thousand rats in a year, or one thousand a week in public amusement alone. To show the nature of the sport of rat-catching, I print the following bill, of which I procured two copies. The words and type are precisely the same in each, but one bill is printed on good, and the other on very indifferent, paper, as if for distribution among distinct classes. The concluding announcement, as to the precise moment at which killing will commence, reads supremely business-like. Ratting for the million! A sporting gentleman, who is a staunch supporter of the destruction of these vermin, will give a gold-repeater watch to be killed for by dogs under thirteen and three-quarter pounds weight, fifteen rats each, to come off at Jemmy Massey's, King's Head, Compton Street, Soho, on Tuesday, May the 20th, 1851, to be killed in a large wire pit, a chalk circle to be drawn in the centre for the second, any man touching dog or rats, or acting in any way unfair, his dog will be disqualified. To go to scale at half-past seven, killing to commence at half-past eight precisely. A dealer in live animals told me that there were several men who brought a few dozens of rats, or even a single dozen, from the country, men who were not professionally rat-catchers, but worked in gardens or on farms, and at their leisure caught rats. Even some of the London professional rat-catchers work sometimes as country labourers, 
and their business is far greater in merely rat-catching or killing in the country than in town from the best information i could command there are not fewer than two thousand rats killed for sport in london weekly or one hundred and four thousand a year including private and public sport for private sport in this pursuit goes on uninterruptedly the public delectation therein is but periodical this calculation is of course exclusive of the number of rats killed by the profession on the premises when these men are employed to clear the premises of vermin there are i am told one hundred rat-catchers resorting at intervals to london but only a fourth of that number can be estimated as carrying on their labours regularly in town and their average earnings i am assured do not exceed fifteen shillings a week being nine hundred and seventy five pounds a year for london merely these men have about them much of the affected mystery of men who are engaged on the turf they have their secrets make or pretend to make their books on rat fights and other sporting events are not averse to drinking and lead in general irregular lives they are usually on intimate terms with the street dog-sellers who are much of the same class many of the rat-catchers have been brought up in stables and there is little education among them when in london they are chiefly to be found in whitechapel westminster and kent street borough the more established having their own rooms the others living in the low lodging-houses none of them remain in london the entire year these men also sell rat poison baked flour or oatmeal sometimes in cakes arsenic being the ingredient the charge is from twopence to one shilling according to the circumstances of the customer in like manner the charge for clearing a house of vermin varies from two shillings to one pound a very frequent charge is two shillings and sixpence end of section eighty one